Welcome back to Amplify, the podcast corollary to EB Medicine's emergency medicine practice. I'm Jeff Nussbaum, and I'm here with my co-host, Nachi Gupta. We'll be taking you through the January 2018 issue of Emergency Medicine Practice, managing patients with oncologic complications in the emergency department. This issue, the first issue of 2018, is actually an update and rework of a double issue published back in February and March of 2010. Given how rapidly the field of oncology is advancing, the editors at EB Medicine thought it was appropriate to revisit this topic. This article is authored by Dr. David Wacker of the University of Minnesota Medical School and Dr. Michael McCurdy of the University of Maryland School of Medicine. Dr. McCurdy was actually one of the original authors of the two issues published back in 2010. This article was edited by Dr. Karen Chase of the University of Rochester Medical Center and Dr. Natalie Kreitzer of the University of Cincinnati. Thank you all for your diligent work. For this issue, the authors focus specifically on metastatic spinal cord compression, tumor lysis syndrome, and neutropenic fever. In their appraisal of the literature, they paid particular attention to articles published after 2010, which is the period after the publication of the original Oncologic Emergencies article. This is an incredibly important topic, as the incidence and prevalence of cancer-related emergency visits continues to rise. Complicating things further, often cancer-related emergencies present with nonspecific symptoms like lethargy and encephalopathy, so they are potentially easy to miss. Let's get started with your favorite section, pre-hospital care. I do love this section. Pre-hospital care for most oncologic emergencies will be supportive with supplemental oxygen or CPAP for hypoxia and respiratory distress and IV fluids for hypotension, as identification of such emergencies will be nearly impossible in the pre-hospital setting. However, as we mentioned in the IBD episode, this may be a good opportunity to involve your medical control to get the patient to the facility that provides most of their cancer care. Clearly, all hemodynamically unstable patients need to go to the closest facility, but those who can wait would benefit from being cared for by their own oncologist. Great points, and these small changes can be very impactful in patient care. We'll break this episode up into three sections, each dedicated to a specific emergency. Let's start off with metastatic spinal cord compression. As some background, cord compression is a fairly rare complication with an incidence of 2.5% of patients with any cancer who required hospitalization in the last five years of their life. If untreated, it may cause irreversible neurologic damage. Even worse, it's generally a marker of poor prognosis, with a median lifespan of three to seven months after diagnosis. Just awful. Most commonly, metastatic cord compression occurs as vertebral body mets extend into the spinal canal. may also result from mets in the marrow space extending through the vertebral vein foramen. Of note, the latter scenario would not show up on plain radiographs. Slow down. We'll get to imaging in a bit. We have some more pathophysiology first. Nerve injury occurs by two mechanisms. Most commonly, tumor growth compromises cord perfusion, leading to edema and further compression. Less commonly, direct pressure on the nerves may lead to axonal injury and demyelination. In terms of specific tumor types, 50-60% to of METs are attributable to breast, prostate, or lung primaries. And as leading theories hypothesize hematologic spread, location parallels the blood supply throughout the vertebral column, with an incidence of metastatic spinal cord compression occurring 5-15% to of the time in the cervical spine, 50 to 70% of the time in the thoracic spine, and 20 to 30% of the time in the lumbar spine. Do note, however, that two studies showed that 30 to 40% of patients with metastatic spinal cord compression had multi-level disease. That's pretty sad. With respect to presentation, back pain, sensory loss, and weakness are the three most common presenting symptoms, occurring 80%, 50 to 75%, and 35 to 75% of the time, respectively. Autonomic dysfunction, such as bowel or bladder dysfunction, usually arises latest in the progression of symptoms. That being said, it's still seen on presentation 50 to 60% of the time, along with many other features you just mentioned. Given these common presenting symptoms, your physical exam should include thorough strength sensation and lower extremity reflex testing. In addition, 
you must palpate the full length of the spinal column and assess rectal tone and perianal sensation. Moving on to imaging. As I'm sure most of you are aware, MRI is the modality of choice. It has a sensitivity and specificity of 93 and 97%. Ideally, the entire spine should be imaged. As it turns out, we're not great at predicting the location of the lesion or lesions. In two studies, 25% of patients had lesions greater than three vertebral levels from the suspected location. Interestingly, four other studies of patients with symptomatic metastatic spinal cord compression found additional asymptomatic compression in 25 to 50% of cases. If MRI is unavailable, as it isn't in many centers, or if MRI is contraindicated, CT is the test of choice. A non-contrast CT should be performed initially to rule out metastatic disease. And then, if metastatic disease is present, a CT myelogram should be done to evaluate the cord itself. Two studies with a total of 101 patients demonstrated similar performance of MRI and CT myelogram. And in the past, there's been some concern about spinal coning leading to paralysis after performance of the LP to facilitate the myelogram. This hasn't been borne out in the literature, so myelography should be considered safe. Next up is plain radiography. Plain radiography may demonstrate lesions. However, several studies have demonstrated that negative radiographs are insufficient to rule out metastatic spinal cord compression. So don't rely on x-ray imaging alone. And lastly, radionuclide scanning. While it does perform similar to MRI with respect to detecting sites of vertebral metastases, it provides no information about the cord and should not be routinely used. Great, so MRI or CT myelogram if MRI is impossible. Next, let's talk treatment. Corticosteroids are the first and immediate therapy in addition to analgesia. Corticosteroids help limit the vasogenic edema and reduce the mass effect on the cord. While older literature cited supraphysiologic doses of dexamethasone on the order of 100 mg per dose, current guidelines recommend immediate treatment with 10 mg of IV dexamethasone for any patient with known or suspected vertebral metastasis and neurologic symptoms. For those with pain alone, no steroids are needed, and for those with severe deficits, like dense paraplegia, 100 mg of IV dexamethasone should be given. Corticosteroids, however, are only a temporizing treatment. Both surgery and or radiation therapy will likely also be needed. This decision is best made in conjunction with your neurosurgeons, radiation oncologists, and medical oncologists. Consideration must be made for the patient's pre-surgical functional status and the radiosensitivity of the tumor type. Patients without contraindications to surgery should receive IV corticosteroids, immediate surgery, and then radiation therapy. Delaying surgery has been shown to lead to worse outcomes. Unfortunately, recurrence is common, with cord compression recurring in 20% of cases. As radiation myelopathy limits the lifetime dose of radiation, recurrence is often managed with surgery alone. And to wrap up this section, prognosis is very poor. As we mentioned earlier, the median survival is just 3-7 to seven months after occurrence, despite appropriate management. For this reason, definitely consider the patient's overall function and condition and consider a purely palliative approach. Of course, remember to involve the patient's entire treatment team in this decision. Palliative medicine is often the best and most patient-centric approach to care in these cases. All right, let's transition to the second of our three emergencies, tumor lysis syndrome. Tumor lysis syndrome, or TLS, occurs when cell turnover outpaces the body's normal regulatory mechanisms, leading to an excess of intracellular contents in the extracellular space. Bulky tumors, advanced metastatic disease, hematologic tumors, and pre-existing renal failure are all risk factors. These risk factors are changing, though, as chemotherapy becomes more effective. Acute kidney injury is one of the most common complications of TLS and carries a high morbidity and mortality. The exact mechanism hasn't clearly been delineated, but likely involves either uric acid and calcium phosphate crystals leading to crystal nephropathy, or serum uric acid leading to renal vasoconstriction and inflammation. 
These insults lead to acute kidney injury, which causes further metabolic disturbances, leading to even worse kidney disease, a true downward spiral of events. In one small study of those with TLS, those who had acute kidney injury had a mortality upwards of 50% compared to just 7% for those without AKI. Symptoms of tumor lysis syndrome are typically due to electrolyte disturbances, and as we mentioned at the beginning of this episode, are often nonspecific, including nausea, vomiting, cramping, myalgias, tetany, edema, dysrhythmias, lethargy, confusion, seizures, or coma. Quite the list. To make the lab diagnosis of TLS, the patient should have a known or suspected malignancy in addition to one of the following. A uric acid level greater than 8, a potassium level greater than 6, a phosphorus level greater than 4.5, a calcium level less than 7, or a change in any of these values by 25% or more from baseline. Once lab TLS has been established, a clinical diagnosis of TLS can be made when the patient additionally has neurologic symptoms like a seizure, confusion, or coma, cardiac dysrhythmia, or an acute kidney injury requiring hemodialysis. It's important to always keep tumor lysis syndrome on your differential as TLS may masquerade as sepsis, prerenal azotemia, or malignancy-associated hypercalcemia. Specifically, with respect to sepsis, the actual lysis of tumor cells may lead to a SERS response without an actual infection. Great point, but back to the labs for a minute. And those with TLS, make sure to also measure the ionized calcium, creatinine, BUN, and an LDH. A Foley should be considered along with the UA with microscopy and urine electrolytes to calculate a fractional excretion of sodium. Although not necessary prior to admission, renal imaging should also be done to rule out obstructive pathologies. Not surprisingly, therapy for tumor lysis syndrome is aggressive normal saline administration. Are there specific recommendations about how much fluid to give? There certainly are. Guidelines suggest an initial administration of 3 liters per meter squared per day in adults and children and 200 milliliters per kilogram per day for infants. The goal is to maintain a urine output of greater than 100 mils per meter squared. While diuresis does not improve TLS, it may help avoid volume overload in patients receiving copious IV fluids, but definitely don't start diuresis prior to sufficient fluid resuscitation. And what about renal replacement therapy? RRT certainly has a role, especially in those with acute oliguria and anuria and those not responding to IV fluid repletion. Definitely get your nephrologist involved early, but we'll come back to this in a minute or two. And how about the classic teaching of urine alkalinization? Another great question. Despite what you may have been taught, the most recent guidelines specifically advise against urine alkalinization due to lack of evidence and potential for worsening acid-based arrangements. You also need to be judicious with your monitoring and management of hyperkalemia, which can become an immediate risk for life-threatening dysrhythmias. Hyperkalemia associated with TLS should be managed as all hyperkalemia should, with IV calcium, IV insulin, D50, albuterol, and IV sodium bicarbonate if needed. IV fluids and loop diuretics, dialysis, and sodium polystyrene sulfonate may also have a role. The role in controversy over sodium polystyrene sulfonate was discussed much more thoroughly in the November 2016 issue. It's worth repeating here that there are well-documented cases of bowel necrosis in patients with renal compromise who were given sodium polystyrene sulfonate. And the last electrolyte to discuss prior to moving on to some drugs is calcium. Although patients may develop hypocalcemia due to calcium phosphate formation, avoid the urge to correct hypocalcemia as this may worsen the problem. Calcium should be reserved for those with neurologic symptoms or dysrhythmias. Okay, so let's move on to some drugs, the xanthine oxidase inhibitors and resbiracase, both of which target uric acid. In those with TLS, uric acid levels rise as a result of purine nucleic acid metabolism as DNA is released from dying cells. Allopurinol, more commonly used for gout, competitively inhibits xanthine oxidase, an enzyme in the nucleic acid degradation pathway, thus preventing the conversion of xanthine to uric acid and therefore worsening of the hyperuricemia. 
Do note, however, that allopurinol must be renally dosed, and it may also alter the metabolism of the specific chemotherapeutic agents. Febuxostat, a non-competitive inhibitor of xanthine oxidase, may also be used. It's much more expensive, though, so allopurinol is more commonly used. At least one small randomized control trial showed non-inferiority between the two. Unlike the xanthine oxidase inhibitors, which only prevent the formation of more uric acid, raspiricase, on the other hand, aids in lowering uric acid levels. Raspiricase is a recombinant urate oxidase, which metabolizes uric acid to allantonin, which can be renally eliminated. Studies have shown that even single doses of raspiricase successfully lower uric acid levels. For this, as well as other reasons, the British Committee for Standards in Hematology recommend raspiricase for any patient with laboratory TLS. Raspiricase, though, should be avoided in those with G6PD deficiency as it can trigger a hemolytic crisis. Methemoglobinemia has also been reported as an adverse effect, but it's not common enough to avoid administration. And lastly, let's round out this section with a quick mention of renal replacement therapy and disposition. In a recent cross-sectional study of almost 23,000 patients, 12% of patients with lab TLS developed AKI requiring dialysis. Dialysis is indicated for oliguria despite fluid resuscitation, recalcitrant electrolyte abnormalities, or worsening acute kidney injury. Both hemodialysis or continuous renal replacement therapy may be used. However, peritoneal dialysis is not an option. And as you likely expected, all patients with TLS should be admitted, level of care to be determined by each specific clinical scenario. Any patient with clinical TLS will likely require an ICU consult. All right, that rounds up tumor lysis syndrome. Let's get to our third and final oncologic emergency, neutropenic fever. Neutropenia occurs via two mechanisms, either due to overgrowth of malignant cells in the marrow, crowding out functional precursors, or from collateral damage from cytotoxic anti-cancer agents. As the number of neutrophils decline, the patient's innate immunity wanes. Patients become more susceptible to life-threatening infections. Unfortunately, this is a relatively common complication, with rates as high as 50% for those with solid tumors and as high as 80% for those with hematologic cancer. The first step in the workup for a potential neutropenic fever is to determine the severity of neutropenia by examining the absolute neutrophil count, or ANC. To calculate the ANC, multiply the total white blood cell count by the sum of the percentage of granulocytes and bands, and then divide this number by 100. You can pull up the easy-to-use calculator on mdcalc.com. Once you have the ANC, you can begin to determine the patient's risk. The risk of infection begins as the ANC falls below 1,000. The risk of infection actually rises linearly as the ANC falls. When the ANC falls below 100, the daily risk of infection is greater than 50%. That's astonishingly high. While neutropenia has been graded as mild, with an ANC between 1,000 and 1,500, moderate, with an ANC between 500 and 1,000, and severe, with an ANC less than 500, for simplicity, most current guidelines don't emphasize these gradations, but rather define a neutropenic patient as a patient who has an ANC of less than 500 or a patient whose ANC is expected to fall below this threshold within 48 hours. In terms of signs and symptoms, the range is quite broad. First, let's talk temperature. Fever, defined as a single temperature over 38.3 or sustained temperature of 38 for over an hour, may be the sole presenting symptom. Others may be afebrile but with the signs and symptoms of infection and should be managed as if they have a neutropenic fever. And lastly, a third group of patients may present hypothermic. Hypothermia actually has a higher correlation with mortality than fever among those who are neutropenic with sepsis. Common sites of infection include the lung, anorectal area, skin, oropharynx, and urinary tract. Not surprisingly, common pathogens affecting neutropenic patients are frequently from the patient's own microbiome. One PCR-based study noted that 65% of identified pathogens were normal human flora. 
Given these facts, the physical exam for a neutropenic patient needs to be a detailed one, paying particular attention to the oral exam, looking for mucositis, as well as the perianal exam to assess for a perianal abscess. The authors do note, however, that experts recommend against a digital rectal exam to prevent translocation of rectal flora into the bloodstream. And even though fever in a cancer patient can be from a variety of causes, including venous thromboembolism, infection, and the cancer itself, given the high mortality of neutropenic fever, the patient must be empirically treated for infection. Before discussing treatment, let's talk workup. The first step in the workup is blood cultures, at least two sets of two bottles. If the patient has an indwelling line, one set of cultures should be drawn from each lumen of the line in addition to a peripheral set of cultures. This is actually a really important point. At least one prospective study demonstrated that a positive culture from catheter-drawn blood occurring two hours or more before peripherally drawn blood carried a 100% positive predictive value for catheter infection. Conversely, if the catheter-drawn culture grows within two hours of the peripherally drawn sample, this has a negative predictive value of 89 to 96%. In addition to cultures, there are of course other studies which you would want to get, including a CBC with diff, renal and hepatic function panels, UA, and urine culture. A serum lactate should also be drawn in those who are hypotensive or with concern of shock. For those with diarrhea and abdominal pain, C. diff testing is recommended even in the absence of traditional risk factors. And lastly, for those with respiratory symptoms, consider sputum cultures and viral testing. Bronchoscopy and bronchoalveolar lavage may be necessary, especially in the setting of fungal pneumonias, but this can be done during admission. In terms of imaging, let the clinical scenario guide your workup. Chest x-ray is only necessary in those with respiratory symptoms and should not be done routinely. Chest CT should be considered in those with fever for over 72 hours who had a negative or inconclusive chest x-ray. Similarly, sinus imaging may be considered in the workup of an occult fungal infection in those with fever for over 72 hours without a known source. All right, let's move on to management, starting with risk stratification. There are three sets of criteria that can be used to define the patient's risk. According to the Infectious Disease Society of America, or IDSA, a high-risk patient is anyone with at least one of the following. 1. An expected duration of neutropenia greater than 7 days. 2. Expected ANC nadir less than 100. 3. The presence of hypotension, pneumonia, abdominal pain, or neurologic changes. And 4. Existence of significant comorbidities. The European Conference on Infection and Leukemia also identifies those with current or prior infections with resistant organisms or treatment in a center with known prevalence of resistant organisms as high risk. Lastly, you can also use the Multinational Association for Supportive Care in Cancer, or MASC, risk index. The MASC gives a point value to each of eight clinical features, and a score over 21 identifies the patient as low risk. Points are assigned as follows. Five points for absence of hypotension. 5 points for asymptomatic or mild symptom burden, 4 points for no history of COPD, 4 points for no prior fungal infection or solid tumor type, 3 points for the absence of dehydration, 3 points for overall moderate symptom burden, 3 points for an onset of fever while outpatient, and lastly, 2 points for age less than 60. Since you even struggled to read that coherently, I'm going to go ahead and once again refer both you and the listeners to MDCalc for a very easy-to-use calculator. Yeah, there's an MDCalc app for the iPhone and Android too. Pull up the calculator on your phone to make your life easier during shift. For sure. Although I won't go through them all, there are a litany of additional high-risk features not listed in any of these criteria. If you take away anything from this section, remember that neutropenic infection carries a mortality rate approaching 20%, so all patients need to be treated with due caution. Okay, so now we've identified patients as high-risk and low-risk. It's time to discuss antibiotics. All high-risk patients should be managed with IV broad-spectrum antibiotics. 
Current guidelines recommend single coverage with a broad-spectrum anti-pseudomonal beta-lactam agent like cefepime, pepersil, and tazobactam, miropenem, or imipenem. Many studies have compared these agents head-to-head without a clear winner. However, one meta-analysis did suggest a survival benefit, albeit small, for piperacil and tazobactam as compared to cefepime. But what about gram-positive coverage, and specifically Vanco for MRSA? That's a great question, but despite increasing rates of bacteremia with gram-positive organisms, multiple studies have failed to show a survival benefit from routinely adding vancomycin, and in fact have shown some increased complications like acute kidney injury. Empiric gram-positive specific coverage should be reserved for those who are clinically unstable, those with cellulitis, those with suspected catheter-associated infection, and those with pneumonia. All others only require single-agent coverage. There are also a number of other special situations in which additional agents should be added on to the empiric broad-spectrum coverage, which I'll quickly run through. For those with abdominal pain and diarrhea, metronidazole should be added for empiric C. diff coverage. For those with pneumonia, azithromycin or a respiratory fluoroquinolone should be added for atypical coverage. Depending on the time of the year, coverage for influenza may also be necessary. Empiric antifungal coverage is rarely employed in the ED unless there's a patient-specific scenario calling for it. Some oncology units employ preemptive screenings with regular chest CTs and measurements of galactomannan levels. Despite no definitive correlation between delays to antibiotics and mortality, the authors very reasonably recommend broad-spectrum antibiotics as soon as the blood cultures have been drawn. In order to drive down the door to antibiotic time, several unique strategies have been employed with success. Some oncologists provide their patients with an ID card to cue emergency clinicians to order antibiotics without waiting for lab results. Others have implemented a neutropenic fever order set. In perhaps the most progressive study, bedside nurses were empowered to order protocoled antibiotics without waiting for a provider. And if you work in a tertiary or coronary care center, it's definitely worth glancing at a few of the articles referenced for some easy-to-implement interventions for your own neutropenic patients. Let's finish off the neutropenic fever section with disposition. All hemodynamically unstable patients should be admitted to an ICU. Most patients with neutropenic fever, however, will be stable for a floor bed while they continue their broad-spectrum antibiotic treatment. Although the next part won't be included in the CME questions, it's definitely worth noting, since in one study, over three-quarters of emergency physicians surveyed didn't know it was possible. There's a small population of those with neutropenic fever who can be managed as an outpatient. In order to be eligible for such outpatient management, the patient must meet low-risk mass criteria, have reliable daily oncology follow-up, be clinically stable for at least four hours in the ED, and have no evidence of cellulitis, line infection, pneumonia, or organ failure. And if you are discharging the patient, it should only be after direct consultation with the patient's oncologist. A typical regimen for discharge might include ciprofloxacin in addition to amoxicillin clavulinate. The final topic for this month's podcast is, as always, the controversies in cutting edge. The first relatively new therapy discussed are the monoclonal antibodies. Monoclonal antibodies have been reported to cause hypersensitivity reactions, cytokine release syndromes, and rarely TLS, and progressive multifocal leukoencephalopathy. The second therapy to discuss is immunotherapy, in which the patient's native immune system is bolstered against the tumor antigens. Complications of immunotherapy are due to failure of self-tolerance. Patients often present with diarrhea, hepatitis, skin toxicity, thyroid dysfunction, and rarely with pituitary inflammation. The final novel therapy to discuss for this episode is virotherapy, which is the newest of them all. In virotherapy, viruses specifically target tumor cells and destroy them. Common side effects to be aware of include fever, fatigue, and chills, and much more rarely cellulitis. Let's conclude this episode with a summary of some of the key points and clinical pearls. Metastatic spinal cord compression is best imaged by MRI. If MRI is not available or contraindicated, a non-contrast CT followed by CT myelography 
may perform similar to MRI. Corticosteroids, specifically 10 milligrams of IV dexamethasone, are the first and immediate therapy for metastatic spinal cord compression, as they have limited risk and they limit vasogenic edema and reduce the mass effect on the cord. Patients without contraindication to surgery with metastatic spinal cord compression should be treated first with steroids, then surgery, followed by radiation therapy. Recurrence is common in metastatic spinal cord compression, and prognosis is poor with median survival just three to seven months after initial occurrence. Tumor lysis syndrome occurs when cell turnover outpaces the body's normal regulatory mechanisms, leading to an excess of intracellular contents in the extracellular space. Common lab abnormalities include hyperuricemia, hyperphosphatemia, hyperkalemia, and hypocalcemia. Tumor lysis syndrome is both a lab and clinical diagnosis. Clinical diagnosis additionally includes neurologic symptoms such as seizure, coma, and confusion, cardiac dysrhythmias, or acute kidney injury requiring hemodialysis. Initial treatment for tumor lysis syndrome is IV fluids. Diuretics can be used to avoid volume overload in patients receiving significant fluids. There's no role for urine alkalinization. Xanthine oxidase inhibitors, such as allopurinol, prevent a worsening of the hyperuricemia, while resburicase facilitates the renal clearance of uric acid through the metabolite allantoin. TLS patients who are anuric or oliguric despite fluid resuscitation have recalcitrant electrolyte abnormalities or worsening kidney injury will require hemodialysis or continuous renal replacement therapy. Peritoneal dialysis is not an option. To calculate an absolute neutrophil count, multiply the total white blood cell count by the sum of the percentage of granulocytes and bands and divide that by 100. MDCalc offers an easy-to-use calculator both online and as a mobile app. For those with neutropenic fever, two sets of blood cultures are a must. If the patient has an indwelling line, a set of cultures should be drawn from each lumen. For those with neutropenia, diarrhea, and abdominal pain, C. diff testing is recommended even in the absence of traditional risk factors. For patients with neutropenic fever who are considered to be at high risk, current guidelines recommend broad-spectrum coverage with an anti-pseudomonal agent, such as cefepime, piperacillin tazobactam, miropenem, or imipenem. Gram-positive coverage for neutropenic patients is reserved for those who are clinically unstable, those with cellulitis or pneumonia, or those with a suspected catheter-associated infection. For patients with neutropenic fever who are determined to be low risk by one of the risk stratification tools, outpatient therapy may be an option. A typical antibiotic regimen may include ciprofloxacin and amoxicillin clavulinate. Make sure to include the patient's oncologist in the discharge decision as daily follow-up will be necessary. So that wraps up the January 2018 episode of Amplify. Thanks for listening. Make sure to follow the EB Medicine Twitter handle at EB Medicine for updates and frequent evidence-based emergency medicine pearls. Before you forget, head over to www.ebmedicine.net slash E0118 to earn your much-deserved CME credit. It should only take a minute or two to breeze through the 10 questions. And for all of our resident listeners out there who don't need CME, did you know that EB Medicine offers free access to emergency medicine practice? Head over to ebmedicine.net slash residents to get started today. Happy New Year and talk to you all next month.